0: I want you to imagine, or maybe you don't have to if you're actually here, that you're in gridlock traffic, the really bad kind, the morning commute where everyone's running late and thinking about what they need to get done that day and all the responsibilities they have to keep, and you need to merge over one lane. And the next three people just will not let you merge. They just need to get where they're going faster. Well, it's easy in these situations to forget that we're all on the same team. Now, I happen to take these situations incredibly personally. I get very self-righteous, even though I know I've been the guy on the other side of the equation. And how could you not take it personally? Because it's personally happening to you and affecting you. But the truth is, the real hard to grasp truth is, is that we are all on a team. And literally, we all started off as babies. We started off needing love, care, and compassion. And a lot of us, if not most of us, really weren't raised in a healthy way, and all of us, I would say, have some residual stuff left over that leads to us not acting appropriately. And if we take this to the extreme, if we look at the margins, the gang members, the violent criminals, the perpetrators of real crimes against humanity in terms of, let's say, breaking the golden rule, treating others how you want to be treated, it's really hard to see that they are also human that they were also a baby who needed love and care and probably didn't get it. There's new statistics out that really show patterns. There's new research about free will that lead us to believe that we have less choices than we think we do, especially if these things happen to us at a young age. And we live in a culture now that very much wants to lock people up forever, even if that just means ostracizing them and canceling them, as you would say to Use the the buzzword of cancel culture where when somebody does something wrong, they have to go away forever. And I'm not asking for a get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm not suggesting that everybody needs blanket forgiveness or that there are things that people do that means that they shouldn't be a part of society anymore. In your own life, I really think it's okay and not any less spiritual to not forgive certain people and to stay away. I really do. It may not be your job to be part of their healing But what I do believe is that in our own lives and in society as a whole, there is a lack of compassion. And we are at the stone age of uncovering what it really means to be human. When it comes to my own human journey, let's just say the last two years of talking to these people who I really admire, one of the things that has been popping up is their compassion. Starting with their compassion and love and respect and care they give to themselves, and also the way they love, care, and respect about other people. And so it's caused me to really focus on how can I A, be kinder to myself and how can I be kinder to other people? I'm a good old-fashioned cynic. you know. <laughs> I can snap judge people. I can be very harsh in the same way I'm harsh to myself. And reconnecting with my goodness, with the boy who is nine years old and who loved people and loved humanity and couldn't wait to be an adult in this world. This is something that's been on my mind. So... Today, the guest is Father Greg Boyle. He's a priest and an author, but one of the main things he's done with his time here is to start and run the largest or one of the largest gang intervention programs in the world. It's called Homeboy Industries. It's a nonprofit which has helped build a path to redemption for some of our most forgotten people, violent gang members coming out of prison. This conversation is really Why I started this podcast. This is really what it's all about and I hope you enjoy. There's one thing I wanted to point out because I do make mistakes while I'm having these interviews, which is I caught myself while listening to it frequently referring to the men and women in this program at this company as boys and girls. Maybe it's because the company is called Homeboy, but I just wanted to correct that and say that these are people who deserve dignity. These are men and women who have been through so much in life and who are showing up every day for their own lives and for their communities. So without further ado, here is Father Greg Boyle in an episode I am calling "Unshakable Goodness. How, how do you like to be... You were introduced to me as Father Greg, so I keep wanting to call you Father Greg. No, you can call me
1: Greg. Greg? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what... Nobody calls me Father. Nobody
0: calls you Father Greg?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: Okay. But you happen to be a father. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The homies call me Pops, or uh, the old school ones call me G. Lately, I don't know, since we've been in this building, it's for some reason yeah which is like 10 years
0: well greg thanks for coming on sure program.
1: happy to be with you sam
0: this can be as big or a small big or small of a question as you would like but who are you
1: uh who am i uh i don't know you know uh, I, I, you want to be reflective of a certain kind of presence in the world so i for me it's kind of important to be in the world who god is so that's the aspiration anyway compassionate, loving, and kind. That's who you want to, you want to be anchored in that as an identity. Apart from that, I'm a Jesuit. So I've been a Jesuit for 47 years, a priest for 35 years. This organization, Homeboy Industries, uh, I've been connected with for 31 years. So I suppose that's part of identity. You want to have a light grasp on all those kinds of markers and, and have it be about how you want to be in the world. You want that to be your identifier. So
0: what is Homeboy and Homegirl Industries and what are the services that you guys actually provide?
1: So Homeboy Industries is is the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on the planet. So about fifteen thousand folks a year walk through our doors trying to reimagine their lives. The centerpiece is an eighteen month training program men and women all gang members in the case there aren't that many female gang members truthfully but they're all felons the females and then you know we want them to, it's a therapeutic mystical place where people We have a lot of therapists we have four paid therapists but 47 volunteer therapists including three psychiatrists so everybody's doing the work everybody's trying to somehow navigate their lives. So we have classes, case management, navigators, free tattoo removal, and then we have our nine social enterprises and training programs from lots of restaurants and bakery, silkscreen.
0: I would love to back up a bit and start with just the, the basics of how you got here. And I should clarify, not the how you got to home like not how Homeboy got yeah. here, but how you ended yeah. up starting Homeboy.
1: Yeah. There. So there's a lot of sense of how this uh how does this spring up and, and everything is kind of an evolving thing, you know. I never thunk any of this up, you know, I never envisioned it. But everything was kind of one foot in front of the next and how do we move to the next place. So I grew up in the city, a big family, Catholic family, five sisters. I have two brothers. I'm a middle child. So I was you know, raised in this city, which was quite different from where I grew up is different from what I've come to know for half of my life, you know, living and working with gang members. So uh, I was taught by the Jesuits, so I liked the Jesuits. The Jesuits were hilarious, the funniest human beings I've ever known. Which to me indicated joy. So that was fully attractive. And then they were prophetic. So this was during the Vietnam War, where it was like, hey, we're hopping in a van, we're going to drive to San Francisco and go to the largest, you know, anti war demonstration in the country. Those things happened, you know, without parental permission slips or even cell phones. We just, we did stuff like that. I mean, you could never get away with it now. So they were prophetic and joyful and hilarious, and I was drawn to them. So I entered the Jesuits, you know. And then I went to Bolivia after I was ordained, having spent a summer at uh, Dolores Mission. And that kind of—Bolivia, the combo burger, Bolivia, and having spent a summer at Dolores Mission kind of altered my way of seeing just the poor— evangelizing me. It, it was an experience of people. Those days, it was the poorest country in the hemisphere. Haiti is now, I think, but but this was way poorer than Haiti. And so it kind of altered how my heart operated and, and my mind went.
0: I remember reading your initial disappointment and shame in yourself because you didn't have the, the Spanish down and you weren't received the way you were hoping and what about that experience in Bolivia really started to shape the work you were going to do for the
1: rest of your life? Precisely the thing you mentioned is humiliation/ slash humility you know it's like it helped set the course of what I was going to do. So even when I came to Dolores mission as pastor my you know I knew some it was serviceable but it wasn't great. I couldn't lead the group. I couldn't go to with parishioners to to confront the mayor on some issue. Uh, the people had to had to do it because i was uh my spanish was not that great so it was it was heartening really to to be able to follow them and it became a symbol of what i thought was a, a lucky fortunate thing that had happened to me had i been slicker you know and, and more fluent i probably my time as pastor would have looked differently but then began the decade of death which was, was a period of when shootings were morning, noon, and night. And so then I had to pay attention to that. You know, there was no temptation even to just say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with our parish life. It had everything to do, you know, because the parishioners were dealing with this. And so you couldn't you couldn't compartmentalize it and just say, well, you know, here's mass and church, and let's stay connected to that only. So we didn't do it. And so the people tried to kind of put their wrap their minds around what to do next. Walking to church, they had to duck behind cars and dodge bullets. It was kind of, it's hard to even retrieve it now because it's so distant, you know, that at least the intensity and the ferocity of it. At that point, we had this structure called the Comunidades de Base, which was these base communities, and so we'd meet in people's homes. And it was never Bible study. This was something from Latin America. It was a, how how do you see what's going on in the light of the gospel? And then how do you choose to act in a way that's faithful and authentic? So it was never, let's just talk about Jesus. It was never that. You know, it was, you know, the women, mainly only women, we'd talk about, like, how gang members would shoot out the the all the lights in the what they called the playgrounds which was the big open area at the center of all the surrounding buildings and 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 so that was a kind of a real issue what do we do so you're not going to find much in the gospel about Jesus and his response to a person's right to have light in the housing projects but you know we talk about that kind of thing do you have a right to be able to see and not be afraid and that kind of thing so, you know, it was like our own right to light movement, you know, where we went to the head of the housing authority and said, we don't care if you have to replace these light bulbs every night, you're going to replace these light bulbs. And because the gang members would shoot them out to, so they could sell drugs, but they would never replace the light bulbs, you know, it would just linger forever. And so, uh, so anyway, that was an example of how people would take what's happening and then somehow kind of what would jesus do how would jesus think what would jesus say to the housing authority officials that kind of thing I
0: know a lot of people who are in touch with their inner goodness and they end up frequently being victims of getting walked over and taken advantage of and it's hard to stay connected to your goodness and be firm protective and to not give everybody a chance at your yourself if you're a sensitive being
1: yeah you don't want people to walk over you certainly but you know there's a kind of a tone or a a stance that that feels kind of correct you know one that is firm and decisive but still maintains the things that jesus took seriously inclusion and nonviolence and unconditional loving kindness compassionate acceptance the things that it's kind of a firmness it's it's not returning foul behavior with foul behavior it's just being clear i don't know the folks at dolores mission always taught that to me you know they were very decisive and confident even though they were monolingual uneducated largely but they kind of knew what time of day it was it was always kind of remarkable
0: and so when you leave bolivia what are you left with when you leave bolivia because it you weren't left with like oh let's pat myself on the back and good job greg i think when you i remember when i first started living in San Francisco. I really wanted to feed the homeless guy on the corner every day and make an extra sandwich and this and that. And then you start to get a, a grasp of how serious the problem is, you know, and how little my little daily dent was doing. And it's very easy to get jaded or swallowed up by by the hopelessness, you know, of it all. Especially, I mean, L.A. I think is pretty comparable to San terms, Francisco. Yeah, yeah in terms not, of homeless. Yeah, if not yeah, worse. Yeah. To Be confronted with real suffering, and real suffering that can't be fixed with a a dollar out of your pocket. When you're leaving Bolivia, what are you leaving thinking? Like, what are you? How are you making sense of what you just spent the last year?
1: Well, yeah, I I think initially because there was a, a period I had to finish up my my degree in theology, so it meant I had to go to Berkeley. And the thing I most felt was was culture shock because I had been in a very poor place for a year and then it, I, there was this huge distaste coming back to berkeley place i love i had lived before but it was uh it just felt horrible to me this will just deaden my spirit fortunately i pled with my provincial who's the superior and i said i can't i can't go there and he said well how about dolores mission i said exactly you know the poorest parish in the city of LA, and I already had some familiarity with the place, so I was sent there as pastor.
0: Can you describe what Dolores Dolores Mission is? Yeah, Dolores, Dolores Mission, Mission is yeah. in the context of LA.
1: Yeah, so it's the poorest parish, Catholic parish in the city. At the time, it was nestled in the middle of two public housing projects, Pico Gardens and Aliso Village. Uh, they were contiguous housing developments, and they were. Um, Largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. So my entire parish were just those two housing projects. Tiny geographic area.
0: didn't like each, it was by project? Yeah,
1: well, there were eight gangs in those two projects, which is unheard of, you know. And they were all at war with each other, which didn't percolate fully until about 1988. And I got there, I first got there in 84, but then I was pastor in 86. So very densely populated. You know, it's not now. They've torn them down and reconfigured them. But in those days, a lot of people were living in a tiny space. And that just compounded the difficulty, especially with the burgeoning gang scene. And then pretty soon we were off to the races, you know, eight gangs at war. I buried my first young person killed because of this in 1988. And I buried my 229th two weeks ago. So it had intense problems, you know, issues. And and the parish was the, Dolores Mission was like the center of the universe of that universe. It was and not just a place of worship. It it became, you know, the real hub of the place. People organized from that place.
0: When you're at Dolores, like it, gang members would participate in service. No, they no. didn't. okay.
1: But we, had a, we started a school because we had some all these middle school age or junior high age gang members whose schools didn't want them anymore. There was a tipping point. Uh, gang members went to our local public schools for a time, and then they stopped, and it began with the junior high. Now, we, we can't deal with these kids. So they just let them go. And and there was no place for them. What go. about
0: truancy officers and all that? Yeah,
1: no, it was just no school would take them. It was wow. a really odd thing. And there was the beginnings of uh, alternative schools. And there were a couple high schools, but there was no place for junior high age. So all these kids were wreaking havoc in the middle of the day because they weren't in school. So I walked out to them and I said, you know, if I found a school that would take you, you know, would you go? And they all said yes, and then I couldn't find a school that would take them. You know, so so we started a school. Is that how homeboys are? Yeah. That well, that's how we started as an organization called Jobs for a Future, which was basically locate employment for them. And then we couldn't find it fast enough. You know, there was, the demand was so huge. So we just had maintenance crews and landscaping crews, and we built a child care center, built by rival enemy gang members from the projects, all from the projects, all from the eight gangs. The unrest in 92 happened, and that was after the Rodney King verdict. And the whole city exploded, you know, but not the poorest parish in the city. So the LA Times wanted to know why. And I said, well, you know, maybe it was because we had 60 strategically hired gang members from rival gangs who had a reason to get up in the morning and and a reason maybe they would be the most likely to ignite their own community, and they didn't because they they were kind of aligned to hope. And then a movie producer uh, named Ray Stark, who read the article, who had happened to have five hundred million dollars, summoned me to his Beverly Hills office and said, uh, "You know, how how do you think I should spend my money?" You know. I, I woefully undershot my request. I was so young, I could have really shot for the moon, but I didn't. I just said, "Well, buy this abandoned bakery, you know, across the street from the school. It has ovens. They don't work, but we could fix them and put hairnets on rival gang members and bake bread. You know, I mean, that was the extent of my whole business plan. And he thought it was uh, a great idea, so he he funded it. Then it just kind of snowballed after that you know homeboy tortillas a month later in the downtown uh, grand central market and homeboy silkscreen which has now been around for i think 25 years and this is where we are right now is our fourth location so our headquarters so so now we serve the whole county there you know find any zip code in the county that has a gang and members of that gang have walked through these doors, you know. But we were mom and pop at the beginning. We were just members of the eight gangs in the parish. How, how
0: did you learn how to see these guys and girls for who they really are? For the the babies that were put in fucked up situations yeah. and that were abused and that were taught violence and or found the tools to survive, you know, in their worlds. How did you actually It just seems like even out there now with all these guys who are actively working on bettering themselves, it's still intimidating, you know, and I'm an ex-meth head, right? So I've been around some some shit, but it's still intimidating to be around these ex-gang members. It's easy to really quickly let your prejudices come in. But you weren't trained or anything for this.
1: No, I wasn't. But I, I, you know, they say something about an enemy is just somebody whose star you haven't heard yet or a story you don't know yet. And that became clear early on, you know. Um, Once you get to know who they are, I mean, obviously, it's sort of obvious, but and that would happen. So I'd walk in the projects every day. I had a period of time where I would just be in my office and nobody was coming. I thought, I'm not going to do this. So I walked in the projects. So every day, multiple, multiple times, I'd do the whole my whole parish. I'd walk my whole parish, and then as the gang thing started to heat up, I remember um, you know you didn't we didn't have cell phones. So some senora would come out of the apartment and she'd run out. And she'd go by the day. You know they're shooting in Pico Gardens, and that's when I would see a kid's bike. You know a stingray or any kind of bike. And I said, "I'll bring it right back." And I would take the bike and I'd race over to the other side of my parish. And I did that so often that finally, the the two guys who ran the park across the street from the church called me one day, like in panic, you know, "Come quick! Something's happened here!" I ran over there and they had a big beach cruiser with a big old bow on it, you know, and gave me a bike. (laughs) <laughs> so that was where I would ride my bike throughout the. Wait, whole so you'd
0: ride toward whatever incident was going on.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I would no. go over there to see what was going on, and then then I was. Uh, Have
0: you ever been attacked?
1: I've never. I've I've been in shootouts, but I've you know never taken them personally. You know, because I was in the middle of the night on my bike with a group. I'd be with this group, or I'd be with that group, and people would creep up, you know, and open up fire. And the homies always kind of, you know, were like secret service agents. You know, they'd tackle you to the ground, completely cover you with their bodies to make sure that you didn't catch any gunfire. Always. They always did that.
0: But Homeboy starts with the investment from this producer.
1: That, that's that's when the social enterprise piece started. And so
0: how'd you learn how to, how to do this?
1: I don't think I... What is this?
0: Run this organization? Well, for one, you know, I came out at 22, um, got clean, and I didn't have any adult skills, you know, but I could read and I could write and I could talk properly and I still found it incredibly difficult, you know, because I didn't know how to be a good friend, a really good friend. You know, I knew how to be kind of wheel and deal and play the game so we could have reciprocity, but I didn't know how to, like, really just love you just because you're a dear friend to me. It was all because you had something or because i had something sure you're just dealing with with people at, at a different stage in life that you know i think the way i would categorize it with myself i'll just speak for myself is like there's like this appropriate age for people to make mistakes right and if you're 22 and you don't know anything like i didn't really feel like i knew anything about how to have a good relationship or it's awkward to learn as an adult or even if you're a a young guy and you you know, whenever you decide, Hey, I would like to figure this thing out, how to be a contributing member of my community and this and that it's very, it's awkward as an adult. And it's very easy for other adults to look at that and go, you know, what the hell, you know, like there's not a lot of forgiveness or leeway with it, but you are employing these guys and girls who are not showing up with good employee skills.
1: You know, suffering was your teacher in many ways, you know, in terms of, yeah, unfortunately, but a teacher nonetheless. And, and the same with these folks here, you know, and, you know, the day won't ever come when I have more courage or I'm more noble, you know, and there's a thing called the ACE study, you know, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. And there are 10 kind of checkoff things, you know father was in prison, uh, domestic violence. Um, a parent was mentally ill, um, you know, drug abuse or alcoholism and the thing. Um, there are all these, the 10 and, you know, I grew up in the gang capital of the world. I, I don't register even one on this list, which is very odd, you know, actually. And, but everybody who walks through every gang member walks through here is a nine or 10 and I say, or 10, because sexual abuse is one of the things. And with male gang members, it's hard to get to any uh, acknowledgement of that. But nine or 10 is just off the charts. You know, there's a book called The Deepest Well by our surgeon general here in California. And she says, you know, if you're four or five on that checkout list, that checklist of adverse uh, experiences, then you're, Oh, you know you're you're going to have trouble navigating things, you know. So when you when you encounter nines and tens, boy, you stand in awe
0: at how they survived,
1: what people have had to carry, rather than in judgment, you know. And that's pretty. That's you do that with a quickness, you know. So they present who they are in a way that's really quite, uh, you know, above all delightful. You know, you caught some of an earlier conversation about a fight that happened, which is kind of rare here. And and we have kind of we're not tripped up so much by behavior. You know, we always say what language is that behavior speaking. And yet, you get to a point where you say, "Well, this is kind of a cross of, crossing of a line." We love you. We're in your corner. You know, we can't have a, a male gang member hit a female gang member. You know, we've had fights and stuff, and it's kind of a yeah. You have to. It's a hard line to 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 navigate because then you're going to have people say, "Wow, you know, you can actually do that here." and there's no consequence to it. But we don't embrace what the world embraces in terms of punishment and consequences. We're, we're you know, we, we want to have a more sophisticated take about. What
0: are your core principles
1: that you want to leave with people? Well, there's a, we always talk about a no matter whatness, you know? You know, we love you with a no matter whatness. Even these two guys that that are going to be let go, they know that they can come back. But, but we have to kind of we have to say no this can't happen here and in the old days people would leave they'd test dirty because we test all the time or just stop coming or no call no show or whatever it is and we used to say maybe they'll be back and nobody says that now we always say they'll be back people run the place you know the guy who I was who was, telling me what happened this week he's somebody who came back and now he runs the place you know so it's about redemption but everybody's a whole lot more than the dumbest thing they've ever done or the worst thing they've ever done
0: yeah but our society doesn't often have a real path to redemption for sure like you just look at and you can look at um some of the latest things that have come out, you know, where like it turns out a comedian was a reprehensible, you know, um, sexual abuser. And we want them gone forever, right? We want them to disappear and never make another dollar. Um, and the same could be said about people who commit certain crimes, right? Yeah. That society wants them to go away or be punished forever or... Uh, not have a road to redemption, and so what is your take on on redemption and how there should be a path to it? What that path should look like?
1: Well, the, the beginning path, I think, is to say that we belong to each other. So this place tries to stand against forgetting that you know that we belong to each other, and and the the kind of sin of the world, if you will, is is scapegoating, demonizing other rising and, and there are kind of no exceptions to that notion that there, there are no Desmond Tutu used to say there, there, people do monstrous things, but there are no monsters. And once you kind of are, are cemented in that notion that somehow everybody has Buddha nature, everybody has unshakable goodness, there are no exceptions to that. Even if you kind of, say, talk about anybody, you know, you go, no, they they have unshakable goodness, too. For some reason, they, they're not, not able to access it, you know? They can't get to happiness, consequently, and they certainly have no pathway to joy because they're strangers to themselves, for whatever reason. So, um, but the truth of their goodness is is undeniable, unshakable and forever. And so once you know that that's the baseline for everybody, and that everybody was born wanting the same things, and and then you you help people see the truth. We never say around here, we believe you can change. No, why would you change? Who you are is exactly right. Yeah, who you, you are is perfect. And that's the idea. And then they go, well, then all they have to do is, you know, find, you know, how can their soul find a home right here inside them, that they're exactly what God had in mind when God made them. And the Buddhists have this thing where they say, oh, nobly born, remember who you really are. And that's kind of what we do here. You know, you hold the mirror up. We don't ever hold the bar up and ask them to measure up. We hold the mirror up. Here's who you are. They're like these two kids who got in the fight, you know, they're, they're trying to find the truth of who they are, and their own trauma, and their own despair, and in some cases, their own real mental health issues, keep them from seeing their truth. So the more we can, you know, clear the boulders from the road so that there's a clear path, we don't want anybody here to, to remain a stranger to themselves.
0: How do, That's kind of the goal. How do we help find our own truths? Or well, I think the
1: s- thing that, that happens here, the secret sauce of Homeboy, is a community of tenderness. That only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of altering the world and changing structures. So, uh, Jean Vanier, who just died, who was founded the Larch Communities 60 years ago, all over the world, he says that tenderness is the highest form of spiritual maturity. And that's our methodology here. That's the most disarming thing, however you conceive of the notion of tenderness, that it's beyond love. You know, love is can stay in the head or in your heart or in the ether. But unless it becomes tender, there's no, nothing connective. And that's kind of what people do here. This is why they. Sh- it's not the money. Nobody gets paid anything here, both staff and trainees. I mean, they don't get paid enough. But they show up every day because it's palpable. They can feel that they're welcomed, and they can find rest from their own chronic toxic stress, and, and they can find healing. As difficult as that is to excavate those wounds, and to be friends with your wounds. But tenderness is kind of the thing here. It's a community of tenderness that's compelling.
0: Yeah, but how'd you get it? How did you get the tenderness here? I mean, it it seems like you're so- How did I
1: arrive at a notion like that?
0: Like how did you cultivate tenderness even in the beginning? Like there's so much harshness, right? Like even just, let's say, in a regular office space, right? There's so much passive aggressiveness and harshness. and Jokes that are only funny at somebody's expenses. That's right. And, and there, there, it is no small feat to create a community of tenderness. This just happens to be an extreme example of it. But how do you create it?
1: I don't know. But it's we talk a lot about the culture of this place that you want to nurture. And that there's a principle here that community trumps gang. But you have to create this community, this culture, where fe- people feel cherished. You know, it's like that notion of where, where you talk about parenting, where you say, oh, how does it go? You know, like your kid may not remember what you said to him, but your kid won't ever forget how you made him feel. That's the principle here. They never forget how they were made to feel while they were here and, and, and it comes all the time homies will say oh, i'll never forget what you said to me i go what did i say to you and they'll quote something that you know we all know our own lexicon you know yeah and you know the stuff you don't ever say <laughs> i mean there was a kid a guy tattooed in prison like I, apparently i visited him in juvenile hall i didn't remember him because he was was 15 years later and he was a little kid, and he said, you visited me in the box, which is a kind of the, you know, the segregated, he must have been a wild kid. I don't remember visiting him. And he says, he's sitting in the chair you're sitting in, and he says, I'll never forget what you said to me that day. I said, what did I say? God has a plan for you. Well, first of all, I know I never say that, because I don't believe that, actually. It's not part of my Theology. I know I never said this to this kid. And but I thought about it later. And he's utterly convinced that I did, you know. And I who knows what I said to him. But my hope is that there's a certain sense of how he was made to feel. That is the thing that's more compelling, you know. Um, because people don't remember accurately what it was that you said to them generally speaking maybe they do but generally speaking no but they'll never forget if they were held or cherished they'll never forget if you allowed them to reach you and they'll never forget if you if your stance was i'm gonna choose to receive who you are people will never forget that So I think that's what happens here. People get a kind of unforgettable experience. I have a security guy who's a gang member, George, who uh, walks in and he says, oh, he always says, there's an aroma in here. Well, everybody knows what he means. You know, there's a kind of a, the culture has a, has an aura or a, a kind of a scent. You know, people feel it when they come in hope is that gentleman in security no marcos he's he's i don't know he's always posted up there okay yeah it looks like you're very
0: protected yeah Yeah. i
1: I don't know they overprotect me i you know it's um every day we have somebody here who's maybe not wrapped tight you know and they're very concerned the security guys they're so sweet and they always um you know concerned that somebody might harm me you know I don't ask him to be concerned, but, but I go. No, he's fine. So I know that guy. So I'll take him outside because then he's triggering people, because he's talking to himself and nobody knows what, what to expect. You know, that happened yesterday. But it was a guy I knew, so I took him outside, and we just.
0: What are the greatest lessons about life you've learned during your time here? How have how have they these these guys and these girls that you've worked with changed you?
1: A huge one is. Um, I don't you know i don't believe in saving people that saving lives is for the coast guard you know they taught me how to do this you know they they uh oh something must have happened because they're hang on one second yeah what happened so, a... okay but everything's under control. okay thank you son so we have a clinic, a tattoo removal clinic, and apparently, uh, uh one of the homegirls who was getting a treatment had a seizure. So
0: or passed out or something. Something.
1: Yeah, they said a seizure,
0: but probably I, I would imagine passing out.
1: Yeah, could, you see that with t- getting tattoos. You see yeah. people pass out the pain. Uh, so they, I saw them uh, p- opening up the doors, and the and the ambulance just arrived. So so this is homies at their best because they get very. Uh, Really helpful and yeah,
0: so yeah. Well, they're normally the guys running towards the fire, right? Yeah, so. that's right.
1: Exactly, <laughs> they do. But anyway, so what I think what I learned is, uh, you know, you can't fix people. You know, you can't rescue them. Around here, I, I'm kind of impatient with you know, when people, especially my senior staff. You know, oh, I, you know, I like burnout. I just don't believe in burnout. I always think, you know, if you're burning out, you're doing it wrong. I think, you know, if you're burning out, it's about you, you know, and we do this very overly dramatic, I guess I just so compassionate, you know, and I'm overwhelmed by all this kind of stuff and compassion fatigue. I go, no, you, you got the wrong lenses on, I think. Feel free to be exhausted because that's okay. But if you're depleted by being here, then it's about you, and, and you need to alter that. Then you're trying to reach people. But if you turn that on its head and just say, I'm going to allow myself to be reached by people. I'm going to let that homie reach me. I'm going to receive who he is. And, and then suddenly that is eternally replenishing. And I really believe in that, you know. Because people always ask me about self-care and stuff like that. And I, you know, probably for the first six years of or more of doing this work, I, I could see that I was doing it incorrectly. Oh. And then I stopped. I just shifted. I, I turned it on its head and I went, I'm going to delight in the people in front of me. I'm going to receive who they are. You know, people will say, how do you reach them? And I go, yeah, you know, for starters, stop trying to reach them. Just let yourself be reached by them. And then suddenly, it's exquisitely mutual. People are inhabiting their own dignity. You haven't tried to deliver a message. You've just allowed people to alter your heart. And they know that you have. And then they feel you know, that they've inhabited their worth and their dignity and, and their goodness, not because you gave them a message. We don't like message here. A, a woman once came in and said, I have to volunteer at Homeboy. And we have like 300 volunteers. I go, why do you have to volunteer at Homeboy? She goes, I believe these young people, I have a message these young people need to hear. I went, yikes, I don't want your damn message. You know, come back when you don't have a message. And And people will say, you know, understandably, you know, what am I going to do here? High school kids come and do, spend a month or something. What am I going to do here? And I go, no, the question is, what's going to happen to you here? If you can kind of turn that on its head, eventually you'll do something here. You know, you're not just going to sit around. But you want them to. Ha- you want something to happen to them. Otherwise, it's, you know, building the orphanage in Tecate or something, which is fine. But I'd much rather have your heart. You, you don't go to the margins to make a difference. You go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different and that's the whole thing. That's where the joy is. That's how it's supposed to work, I think. So you ask me, what have I learned? That That's kind of the principal thing for me. You know, the widow, orphan, and stranger, as the covenant says, as God says, as I have loved you, so must you have preferential special care and love for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. Because these are the folks who know what it's like to be cut off. Everybody in that lobby right now knows what it's like to have been cut off. And because they have suffered in exactly that way, they happen to be our trustworthy guides. They're the ones who are going to lead the rest of us to a community of kinship and tenderness. They're the guides. So it feels like that's the reversal, I think. And by allowing yourself to be reached, and that's that's the real service. That's the ministry. That's what you do. I think, and and that's what they've taught me here. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Everybody knows not to sit in that chair because people walk by and wave, and and uh, sometimes people sit in that chair over there. So they, so I don't have to look over your shoulder. It's infuriating. I know.
0: No, that's okay. <laughs> You learn a lot about humanity here, working with these guys and letting these guys and girls teach you. When you are in the, I don't know what you want to call it, the regular civilian world where people are totally fine being assholes to each other in traffic, like these strangers. What have these guys in the margins, these guys and girls in the margins, taught you about how to behave? And because you know, yeah, we no, ma- that's a good question. We make a lot of uh, judgments based off of the people who are struggling the most. But then you, you can also look at the the kind of regular life and it's not full of kindness. You know, there's l- great moments of, of kindness and goodness, but there's a lot of, I really think people really are who they are in traffic, mm-hmm. you know, and I've seen a lot of very spiritual people re- <laughs> really lose it, you know, really lose it or have throw tantrums like little kids. Yeah. Or, and that's ugly. Like, you know, that's really ugly yeah. to watch them unravel. <laughs>
1: Well, they they've taught me this. They always the homies here talk about doing the work. So so like that guy Jose who I was talking to, who's kind of helps run the place. If somebody lashes out or gets crazy with somebody or gets in somebody's face, uh, it's not about altering behavior. You know, again, behavior's a language. But they'll they'll say, you know what happened right there? He took you to that place, and that's the language they always use. Don't let them take you to that place. And then, then you again, you turn that on its head. You think power is getting in somebody's face. There's an expression, no me deja, in Spanish. Don't let yourself. It, it translates to don't let yourself. We don't really use that in English, but they'll say, the homies will say that, well, I wasn't going to let myself, which was a kind of a, in prison, you know, they'll say, I don't want the guards to mistake my kindness for weakness, you know. And that's the hope, you know, is that somehow they'll discover that kindness is the only strength there is, you know, and you, so you do the work so that you can't be taken to that place, even in traffic.
0: A lot of what you're living by is a lot of acceptance, a lot of letting things kind of happen organically with good direction or good not even direction but
1: no but they're you know they're the ones they're the teachers because it's not like learn from me you know right and that's the point of a community of tenderness is that everybody's bumping into each other and people people are rough around the edges you know but but you kind of have principles like one principle is you know part of doing the work is making friends with your own wounds everybody's deeply wounded here if you are a stranger to yourself, if you don't welcome your own wounds, you're going to be continually tempted to despise the wounded. And that's kind of what I think what we're seeing currently in our country. You know, people talk about tribalism or division or, no, people are strangers to themselves, and they dis- they despise the wounded because they're not friendly with their own wounds. And so folks have to excavate all that stuff, which is extraordinarily painful. They have to re-identify who they are in the world, which is hard for a gang member because, you know, you used to think courage meant packing a gun and now that has nothing to do with it. You know, you have to come to terms with what was done to you, you know, as a kid. There there was a a guy, Jermaine, who works here. And I remember years ago when he was a trainee, now he's a navigator, but, you know, he had made this discovery that, He retrieved this memory. When he was nine, he was watching TV, lying on his stomach right close to the TV, and he could see through his peripheral vision that somebody had walked into the room, and it was his mom. She was standing in the doorway, and her arms were extended. He brings focus to her and sees that she has profoundly and deeply slit her wrists, and blood is coursing onto the floor. And then she says to her nine-year-old boy, See what you made me do. And the next day he was taken and put in foster care. His other brother and sister weren't, which was, you know, emphasizing, underscoring something that you wouldn't want to. Then began his life of, you know, all sorts of abuse and terror. Got into a gang, went to prison. But his discovery that day. Because he had come in, and that's how he began the conversation. I discovered something today. He said, I discovered that for all these years, I had preferred my rage to my shame. And because he had made that discovery, which is huge, you know, he could finally forgive his mom for being mentally ill, and he could forgive himself for having once been a nine-year-old boy. So how can that happen here well it can only happen in a culture of where people feel held and where they can find respite where they feel cherished and then they can discover stuff then they leave here and and they're they're resilient and and the world will throw at them what it will but they're not going to be toppled yeah i've started calling fear guilt and shame the unholy
0: trinity yeah because i noticed fear guilt and shame were my primary motivators so when i would get out of bed it was afraid of what would happen if i don't do this and you need to do this because you don't want to be a piece of shit, you know you and uh or if you don't do something to try and get yourself to do it next time you deeply shame yourself for it oh you you really screwed up you really screwed up that's the bermuda triangle right, right. And, there. yeah and so i've been trying to learn how to work an eight-hour day with without using the fear of something going terribly wrong if i don't you know without using the shame of if i don't and so it's i'm like relearning how to work really i'm relearning how to live and but once you start trying to catch those in your own life you start to see them everywhere and you start to see your favorite activists you know using fear guilt and shame to get because it's a very powerful motivator right and it's it's tough you know because right now in my own life i have kind of like a I don't. You could be selling world peace if you're using fear-mongering or if you're shaming people or if you're guilting people for where they are when they see your message. I'm out. I can't have anything to do with it. Right, this. that's right. I can't internalize it. You know, in recovery, they, they say, like, it's a lot easier for somebody to, to pull you down if you're on a table than to try and lift them up on the table with you. You know, you got to be careful. And there's a lot of people opting to yank down rather right, than lift up. Right, right. It's like, it's primal, I think. It's yeah. a, it is a powerful motivator, but God, is it being used by some of my favorite causes yeah. and some of my favorite people? It's a
1: trap, you know. Yeah, but the antidote is um, you know living right here. I always talk about be in the living room. Otherwise, you're in the you're in the bathroom, which is about yesterday, lamenting what happened yesterday, and the kitchen is sort of anticipating with worry and anxiety about what will happen tomorrow. Stay in the living room, you know. And the living room is, you know, the infinite moment when everything happens, as Rumi says. You know, it's, it's, it's the right here and now, obviously. That is absolutely the antidote to the fear, shame, and, 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 and guilt part. Because it's, then all you have to, you don't have to lament what, you know, lament can't get a, a foothold. If, if joy got there first, and the only way to stay anchored in joy is to just be right here, you know, with the person in front of you. It's extremely hard to do, I think. But I know it's the answer, because I, I can train myself walking from my car to into this building in the morning when they're all wanting a piece of you, you know? Yeah. And, and you kind of say, S- stay here, stay listening. Don't go anywhere else, don't go to the bathroom, don't go to the kitchen, stay in the living room and, and live with these people. Uh, all these guys and women, because they've all been to prison, they're all used to being watched, but they're not used to being seen. And that, that is unsettling in a really good way. And they're not used to being seen. And that's a hard thing to train around, actually seeing people, because that's the only way they can find rest from what weighs them down, you know. But that's the only way you find rest, too, is just to be anchored in the moment, delighting in the person in front of you, breathing in the spirit that delights in your being and then breathing it out into the world. You receive the tender glance, you extend the tender glance. That's where the joy is. You know, people, sometimes they come here and, you know, I've buried a lot of kids or it's tough or something, and I don't really know what they're talking about. You know i mean they presume this is a grim duty i've never experienced it like that for me it's always been if you can stay present it's delight on top of delight with a side order of delight what are your daily routines rituals to just keep you stay you show up in the right place people think i'm insane but i I get up at three in the morning and so i'm an introvert kind of off the charts, you know, I can get them in front of 10,000 people and give a talk and I'm okay, but I'm an introvert. Put me at a cocktail party and I'm, I'm in pain. I just have to have big chunks of solitude. So I get up at three and I show up here at, you know, eight 15 or normally, but I do all that time. You know, I do emails. I also pray, I read, I walk, but I kind of need to do that. Otherwise you lose your center and then it's your you're running pillar to post i'm on the road a lot because i give a lot of talks and stuff but when i can i bring homies with me which is always a hoot <laughs> that's got to be a fun trip oh my god <laughs> yeah it's always it's always fun because they're you know especially always i try to bring homies who have never flown before which is kind of a not long ago i had two homies enemies rivals african-american and latino so uh, and both had spent half their lives in prison, so so it's ingrained this racial thing, you know. I knew it was, it was feeling like it was going to be a long trip because they weren't speaking. I was doing all the talk, and I went, oh, God, this is going to be bad. And one of them Jose, you know, Southwest, you line up, and so I got, you know, the A-list because I fly a lot, so I'm on the first group, and so they're the next group. And and this kid was saying Jose was going kind of with a loud ass voice, you know. He says, uh, "Hey, gee, should I do? Do I have to put my phone on airplane mode?" I go, "Well, you know, I'm trying to get him to be quiet a little bit." I go, "Well, no, it's okay. You can still use your phone. You can text. You can call. Even on the plane, you can do that. But once they close the doors, you have to turn your phone on airplane mode." And he turned to a total stranger, a woman, and he said, "I've never done airplane mode before." well he was just out of body thrilled and the look on her face was great you know and I thought about it later I thought you know here he he is inviting us into the infinite moment when everything happens which is right here and that's such a a gift because it's so new you know on the same trip they he and Larry at one point because I'm an introvert you know we've given a bunch of talks I said I, in, it was in Chicago. I'm going to drop you off at Navy Pier. I don't know if you know that, but kind of a lot of shops and stuff. Buy stuff for your ladies, you know. And so, well, they come back, and they've they've wandered into that store. I don't know what they call it. It's like a teddy bear store, like build a bear. Oh, where yeah, You go yeah. in there, and you, you make a teddy bear or something. I don't know, to your specification or something. They both got one for their ladies. And then you can record your voice, and then you push the paw on the bear, and your voice comes out of this damn bear. So he came back, and he pushed the paw, and it says, I love you with all my heart, baby. Come here, give me a kiss, in his voice coming out of this bear. Do you think she'll like it? I go, oh, my God, are you kidding she's gonna love it well the next day we were leaving and he forces this thing this always happens the homies buy too much i give money to buy stuff you know for their kids and stuff he's forcing this bear into the damn duffel bag you know every two minutes is uh, i love you with all my heart baby (laughs) the things going through the tsa thing i love you with all my heart he's forcing it into the overhead compartment come here give me a kiss we're howling with laughter and you know, I mean, I wouldn't trade my life for anybody's, and it's mainly that. It's mainly that kind of experience, you know, and uh, and and its homies being so so tender, and they're and I'm not used to that kind of you know because I come from a big Irish Catholic family where we knew that everybody loved each other, but you didn't say it. It wasn't it wasn't affectionate. We would talk shit to each other and bag on each other and in a way that was really quite um, constant. But here they're so affectionate. You just go, wow, where did you get that from?
0: How'd you find your own tenderness and your own sweetness with yourself?
1: Well, I, I, again, I think I found it from them. I, I, my, you know, I know your father. And, and with a kid, it's sort of like, where did you get that? It's not just from where you or how you're raised or where you get it from. But once you have somebody, your tenderness is the truth of who you are. It's not a kind of a, I'm going to go take a course on tenderness. Oh, nobly born, remember who you really are. That's who you are. And then in a baby and a son and a child brings that right to the surface where you can go, this is easy to love you. This is easy to be affectionate with you and they've kind of introduced me to the ease of it and i i was in denver again i had two homies heavily tattooed been in prison all their life you know and there was some guy on the stage 800 people and the guy was introducing me and this homie carlos with without a trace of self-consciousness he just he just leaned his head on my shoulder you know and i thought that's all he did. big old bruising gang member with tattoos all over his face. and he's just leaning his head while while he's hearing this guy introduce me. It was so sweet and it was so unfettered and it he wasn't didn't care what anybody thought. and it just it was so moving to me that where'd he get that from? You know? horrible life, abusive, violent, where did he get that ability to just kind of be so tender and cherishing? And and maybe he got it from here, you know, where I think he felt cherished and was somehow able to, to cherish as a result, you know.
0: Yeah, reconnecting with my tenderness has been a very long journey. I showed up this time around when I got sober really angry, angry at everybody, angry at my son. You know, I had him when I was 19, angry at my mom, you know, for the way she raised me. And to get over that has been no small feat, you know, it's been therapy and trying to reparent myself and trying to go, well, you know, you can't change your single mom doing her best did but you can not do that with jacks that's something and then that's like parenting yourself in a way the way i like to end this program is with a question that if i were to hand you a phone right now and on the other end would be somebody who's a little disconnected from who they really are a little lost like an at-risk kid that you know might come into this building and they could just hear one little message From you until, you know, maybe they find their way here or maybe they grow into themselves and find, but what would you want to leave them with?
1: Again, I'm allergic to message because I I don't think it's about message. And consequently, I don't think it's about messenger. But I'll tell you something that actually happened the other day a kid I've known forever and he needs to go to rehab and gang member and in and out of working here and and some, you know, probably some mental health issues. And for the umpteenth time, he's texting me, asking me for, for money. And I said, look, here's the deal. I will always help you, but I will only help you. So if I give you money, that's not helping you. So we're ready when you are. We got rehab. You need to go to rehab. I love you like a rock. You're my son forever. I know you've burned all your bridges, with your family and your friends, you're never going to burn this bridge with me. I'll always be there for you. So I sent the message, and he texts me back, fuck your bridge. <laughs> 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 and I just sat there, and I went, welcome to my life. Yeah. Part of me wants to go, progress. You know, I don't know what, you know. Now, he's ended up going to rehab, you know. Okay. But, um, and that became a kind of a catchphrase around here. <laughs> Fuck your bridge. Yeah, homies homies who were senior staff, you know, they'd hug me and they go, hey, you know what, G? Fuck your bridge. <laughs> and it's become a kind of a shorthand for don't take things personally and, and you just don't want anybody to ever take you to that place and you don't want anybody to dislodge you from whatever tender stance you you insist on having. But I'm allergic to message you know, because I don't think it's about message. I think it's about tenderness, whatever that means. I'm trying to explore it because I think it's it's a mystical way to be in the world. That's what I want to embrace. Thank you so much for your time. Great being with you, Sam. Thank you.
0: Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at HelloHumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is HelloHumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art in the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description. And it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution. So our patrons are our financial backbone of this product. That's how we manage to do this ad-free. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash how to human. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash how to human. This is the how to human podcast, a production of hellohumans.co. Until next time, have a great day.